A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. A while back, when she first moved to L.A., Jessica worked at a pole dancing studio, an exercise place. The pay wasn't great. She was just a receptionist. But there were things about the place that she just loved. You know, we got to take classes, the receptionist, and you're in a class with supermodels. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. Like, Cindy Crawford was in my class. And so then it would be, wow. it would be like, uh, you know, Cindy does her dance, and then it'd be like, all right, that was beautiful, Jessica, it's your turn. And <laughs> oh, and you're soloing? <laughs> yeah. You have to solo? <laughs> right. What right. kind of exercise yeah. class Cindy makes Crawford. you solo? Another nice thing about the job, once she checked everyone in for a class and the class started, she could take these long breaks. Once, she strode over to Starbucks, and on the way she saw this poster on a telephone pole. Somebody had found a lost animal. And it said, pet found above a picture of a cat. And I just thought it was so weird that they said pet found and not cat found. Which got her thinking. And when she got back to work, without much to do, she decided to make a poster of her own. I just wrote cat found above two pictures of possums that I had printed off the internet. Like one of the possums kind of looks like he's like crouching, disturbed by an invasive camera lens. And then the other possum is hissing. I have to say the second possum is actually kind of scary. It's uh, bearing its sharp teeth, kind of snarling. And then um, handwritten underneath, there are bullet points. Male. No collar. Not very friendly. I think he might be scared. I said, not housebroken either, which I drew a sad face next to. And then it says, found on Sunset Boulevard. If he is yours, please call. And then a phone number. Yes, my phone number. She made a few copies, less than a dozen put them up around her neighborhood. The idea that um, some hapless, well-meaning person would put up a poster like this thinking that they had a cat just seemed so funny to her. She thought it was obvious that it was a joke. She really didn't expect the calls. Within two days, my phone just wouldn't stop ringing. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating about that. Like, I had to turn my phone off because it was just constantly, constantly, constantly ringing. I'm calling in regards to the sign you have about the cat found. I'm calling about your cat found sign. And uh, I'm just wondering, um, are you serious? Because I don't think that's a cat. And then I, when I started listening to the voicemails, you know, it was kind of like this very unscientific, I would say, social experiment. Because you could really, like, lock the calls into three groups. And the largest group of people were actually very kindly just calling to tell me that it wasn't a cat and that it was a possum. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that the picture that you have is of a possum and not a cat. So you don't want to call animal control because it has rabies. I'm a kind of a wildlife guy and that's a possum, a male possum. And you probably want to release that. I'm not sure if it was a joke or real, but I'm sure you know by now probably it was a possum. <laughs> I should probably let it out. 
so it's not in your house destroying everything and it hopefully doesn't have rabies and hopefully you didn't get hurt didn't bite you and it was like they were usually concerned for my well-being or the well-being of the animal you probably just want to get rid of it you know let it go or throw it away but all right god bless take care but anyway, that was nice of you to try to help uh, a poor little soul like that. Okay? So I would say like, you know, 70% of the people who called were just calling out of, you know, the kindness of their own heart and concerned. And then maybe 20% were calling like they were in on the joke, you know, and so calling to say, that's my cat. Do you have my cat? Oh, my cat. His name is Giorgio and then would make up a story about their cat or pretend to cry because they miss their cat. Like this next guy who, the sound quality, this isn't so great. He says it's his cat, and the cat is a really gentle spirit. He's a really, really, really um, gentle spirit, um, but his behavior is uh, erratic. So um, he loves to sleep in the same bed with but he can get, um, you know, a little aggressive. So you got to thump him in the nose. You got to thump him in the nose, he's saying. Just thump him with your knuckle. Clearly very bad advice. Jessica says maybe this guy's just trying to mess with her. Which brings us to the last of her three categories of callers, making up maybe 10% of all calls, she says. They're the ones who are mean and not in on the joke. Like... They're calling to call you an idiot. Nina, that cat, it's a possum, you frickin' Hi, I think you found my cat. Um, I was just calling in reference to your poster. Uh, if you could call me back, that'd be really great. Oh, and uh, by the way, you're a fucking idiot. That's not a cat. Bye. <laughs> Jessica ended up getting hundreds of calls from all over the country because somebody posted her cat found sign on the internet. And the fact that overwhelmingly, most people who called wanted to help her out and warn her it was a possum, and that only 10% of the callers went out of their way to be mean. She says, normally, she thought, you know, people as a whole were not so great. She wasn't somebody who had much faith in humanity. I mean, you know, for good reason. Sure. But so, yeah, so... I was like a cynical person, but then when the calls started coming in and the majority of them were so nice, it was very surprising to me. It's interesting that your conclusion to this is like, oh, people are surprisingly nice. Yeah. You never hear that lesson. (laughs) I feel like so many things in life really come down to if you think people are nice or not, if people are going to try to do the right thing. I feel, I feel like it, it runs all through our politics. It runs through uh, personal situations, uh, whether or not you think people are going to basically do the right thing and be kind most of the time. Right. What do you think? Do you think they are going to do the right thing and be kind? Oh, my God. Of course. Like, I'm so squarely on the side of like, oh, yeah, most people are going to try to do the right thing most of the time. But I definitely get into lots of conversations all the time with people in my personal life and, you know, just just elsewhere who are just like, oh, of course that's not true. Of course that person's trying to rip you off. Of course they didn't mean well when they did this. Right. When I made the poster, I would say it absolutely surprised me that people wanted to be helpful. 
Welcome to WBEZ Chicago. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, The Possum Experiment. We have three stories today on our show of people in widely different situations, puzzling out. Can we trust people? Really? Are people mostly good? I know that it's such an embarrassingly basic question to be asking, but sometimes you really are in situations where that is the thing you need to figure out. Why don't I just ask the question today? We have answers. Stay with us. Taekwon, now you see me. Casey Lemon's a writer, and he's pretty clear on where he stands on this question, can you usually trust people? He lands squarely in the camp of be skeptical. He says we've all been burned by other people, by institutions. We build up distrust, and distrust protects us, which is the opposite of what Daryl Lennox believes. Daryl's a comedian. He says we're better off trusting that most people have good intentions. Yeah, you run into bad apples, but it's not worth constantly being on guard. This is not, however, what Daryl always believed. In fact, till recently, he was more like Kiese. But then something happened, something big, that changed his mind. Kiese, talk to him about it. There's a joke that Daryl Lennox tells that I love. He's a comedian, and a lot of his comedy has to do with the absurdities of losing his vision. I'm at the Bag Slam in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And then all of a sudden, this old black dude shows up in front of me. He goes, hey, man, ain't you a comedian? I go, yes, I am. He goes, I saw you on TV, man. Conan? Yeah, yeah, that was me. He goes, you a funny dude. I said, I appreciate it. Thank you. He goes, yeah, you the real philosophical nigga with the fucked up eyes. Like, who do you comedy? I was like, uh, that is not how I describe myself at all. Uh, yet inarguably accurate, sir. I cannot debate you on this one. <laughs> he kept going, yeah, man, you's funny. You like half Morpheus, half Mr. Magoo. You's a funny motherfucker, man. I was like, half Morpheus, half Mr. Magoo? I love this joke because this stranger at the baggage claim, who reminds me of all my Newport smoking uncles in Milwaukee, is recognizing Daryl and letting him know it. It's like that knowing nod I've gotten my entire life from older black men strangers, often with a slow shake of a head and a mouth smirk. It, yeah, I, I took it as a compliment. It was why I said it on stage that night, because it was really deep to me, the fact that he could sum me up that quickly. Daryl always had problems with his vision. Though growing up, he was able to see well enough to play point guard on his basketball teams in high school and college. He went completely blind in his left eye two decades ago, when he was 33. And then, in 2018, he became allergic to his glaucoma meds and started to lose a vision in the other eye. Be two years ago this month. I don't remember the day, but I went to bed and I could still look and see through a very small corner window of my eye and read a text message that had come in uh, and then didn't respond to it. And then I go to sleep and wake up the next morning and that window was shut and so it was just straight black. Uh, and then uh, I laid in the bed, kept opening my eyes and closing to see what was going to happen. Uh, and then uh, I didn't want to stay in the bed too much longer because then that's when, you know, the fear stuffs. And so uh, I got up, felt my wall all the way to the bathroom. And I stood in the bathroom, tried to stare myself in the mirror. I just kept turning the light on and off to see 
if I could register any like them on it, and nothing happened. So I stared in the mirror, and I felt for the toothbrush, and I brushed my teeth, and I said, you are not allowed to cry. Yeah, I did my affirmations. I did my affirmations. I'm the best of all time. I'm the best comic alive. I'm the funnest MF on the planet, and I'm going to change this world. Boom. So let's go to work. So then I just start feeling my way around the house. I just start, you know, riding the walls, wow. sitting down, uh, and, and figuring out how to use my phone. You can't anticipate absolute blackness. There's just no way to anticipate it. You know, you can't practice it because even when you close your eyes, you still can. I was about to still ask, light and stuff going on, right? There, there, there's a difference, right, between yes, like my, when I'm, my eyes are closed right now. That is not what you're talking about. That's right. Before he lost his sight, Daryl described himself as a fighter, nearly completely distrusting of the motives of strangers. He stayed clear of them as best he could, but after he completely lost his sight, that changed. He felt like he had to trust strangers now. That he was getting into situations just getting from one place to another, where he thought he had no choice. This, of course, isn't how everyone who's blind moves through the world. Strangers started approaching Daryl in a new way, too. Realizing he was blind, they would come up to him at bars, restaurants, and airports and start telling him secrets. Lots of secrets. All the secrets. He told me he'd have conversations like this eight or ten times a week sometimes. It's like a confessional. Uh-huh. People, it's like a confessional. People get close enough to me and they start confessing all this stuff. One lady, um, you know, I was listening to a text message on my phone. She goes, put your phone down and grab my phone. I go, what are you doing? She's putting it down. You know, life is short. I go, I know, I know, but I'm blind and that's why I have to listen to my phone. She goes, listen, I'm dying. I have two months and I want to enjoy as much as possible. So now I have to stop and listen so that she can have a complete, fully attentioned, listen to conversation about her mortality. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her the questions about, you know, are you prepared or what are you afraid of? I have these conversations with people all the time. Strangers will talk to Daryl about their partner's cheating, their money issues, their brutal divorces. An ex-Catholic priest told him he liked to have sex with straight men. Some dude told him how he once robbed a bank in Seattle and got away with it. Each confession, unprovoked, completely unsolicited. And by the way, mostly from white strangers and all from folks who were not blind. Daryl says people do this because he can't see them. He can't judge them. I wonder if these strangers are leaning violently almost on that Morpheus idea that a blind black man is some kind of oracle, a soothsayer, a wise black superhuman here to save us all. I wanted to try my best to not be like that. And yet, as we talked about strangers, I wanted badly to confess to Daryl how terrified I've always been of them and how COVID made this worse, made me see every stranger as someone I might kill or be killed by, how two years into the pandemic, I've been nudged from being slightly antisocial into a complete recluse. I didn't say any of that to him. But it was why I was interested in talking to him in the first place. Because his experience of the last two years has been the complete opposite. He went blind at the beginning of the pandemic. And since then, he's more embracing of strangers, more open to them than he's ever been in his life. I listened to all of his albums and was intrigued, if not fully convinced, by his musings on that and on the relationships between blindness and blackness. Here's one of those. 
Here's some that I philosophize this little trip. It's a trip for me. This fucks my head a little bit. My blindness is diffusing the scariness of my blackness. That was one of my secret weapons to be a big brother and people get nervous. Oh, fuck out of us, big black guy, watch out. That shit is powerful. It's, it, was, it was a thrill, you know? <laughs> Once people find out that I can't see, my blackness is out the window. They treat me like I'm a make-a-wish baby. Uh-oh, watch out, there's a big black guy. Oh, he just walked into the broom closet. Okay, no worries. I got the joke, but I wasn't sure if I was supposed to laugh at the broom closet trope or nod up and down slowly, signaling that I was aware of the broom closet trope. Daryl told me this one confessing story that was also one of these instances where he could see his blindness diffusing his blackness in real time. It was about a guy he bumped into by accident as he sat down at a bar. The guy seemed unusually mad about it, even after Daryl apologized and explained he couldn't see. So I felt this hostility from her. Energy just, just funky right away. So uh, I, what's your name? He goes, Bob. I go, Bob, I'm Daryl. And I said, come on, man, let me buy you a beer. So then he goes, so you're really blind? And I said, yeah. And he goes, what's that like? I said, well, I have to trust everybody. Uh, he goes, I would never let that happen. He goes, I'm a cop. I go, well, well, wait. So if I have to trust everybody, you have to wake up and trust nobody. He goes, that's exactly right. Bob, the cop, went on to confess how being so vigilantly mistrustful was taking a toll on him. And he wasn't sure if he could keep doing it. And he goes, I'll be honest with you. He goes, uh, my name isn't Bob. I go, I knew you was lying. Ain't nobody named damn name Bob. Ain't nobody named damn Bob. And so, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I said, well, what's your name? And he said, it was Kyle. And he goes, I'll be honest with you. He goes, when you sat down, I immediately got my guard up. I go, because I'm black. He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm always on the lookout for it. And he goes, now, I go, so now that I'm, I'm blind and black, you don't feel like threatened or anything. He goes, I wasn't threatened. I'm just on the lookout for stuff all the time. Wow. The cop formerly known as Bob wasn't just telling on himself. To me, he was telling on his entire profession. Daryl told me that when they finished talking, the cop hugged him tightly and did not want to let go. That doesn't happen if I'm not blind and then I sense his hostility. I'm like, oh, this, this, this cracker ass dude is on some shit and I got to be careful of him. He's going to be careful of me. And we have a conversation about something that just stereotypical dumb stuff. But now because that door is opened where he's not being judged, he can apologize for judging me. And now we get to be on the same plane of existence. There was something incredibly dizzying and high-key brutal about the this-doesn't-happen-if-I'm-blind part of the story Daryl told me. And so the idea that people are treating you with less suspicion now, what does that make you feel, actually, about other people? Uh, it, it makes me feel about other people. It makes me feel like uh, we're all just one thing away from becoming more connected in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so if all it took was for me to go blind, for you to not feel threatened or weird, maybe we're all just one thing away from realizing we're way more connected than we are disconnected. Mm-hmm. That feels like a really positive conclusion, right? And, and I don't know that I would see it like that. I would imagine being mad about the hypocrisy or disappointed. I can't see it 
I can't see it anything other than uh, just a positive thing because I can't. I'm not. I'm not going to be a well of, you know, somebody else's negativity to let it contaminate me. It's kind of how I've been trained in my brain anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I've got to be stronger mentally than I've ever been in my life. I've got to be stronger mentally than anybody else. No different than what Obama had to do or Jesus Christ of Nazareth or Moses or Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X. You've got to be stronger in the head than you've ever been before. I asked Daryl about this so many different ways. Like, really? And each time he responded with almost single-minded positivity. His whole album, Super Bloom, is about accepting catastrophe and willing that catastrophe into absolute abundance. I gotta confess, I didn't get Daryl's refusal to allow any cynicism or even healthy skepticism in until he told me this story about his response to George Floyd's murder. It made me realize how singularly internal his existence is and how singularly protective he must be of that. Daryl said when he heard about the video of George Floyd being murdered, he immediately remembered the sound of George Zimmerman killing Trayvon Martin. I remember uh, how much uh, hearing Trayvon screaming Mm. that sound uh, and with limited vision, you know, it it lasts longer inside of you. Mm-hmm. That audio stays in you. When you when you can't see at all, you know, your imagination can run forever, and your mind is very powerful. You know, so I the the mind pictures what this dude's face might have looked like, right. or was the the officer smiling, or like right. I just you know, it's it's the literal boogeyman effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the, it's the thing under the bed. I remember watching the video and immediately turning the sound off at the point where George Floyd utters the syllable ma in mama. Daryl did not listen to George Floyd call for his mama at all. He knew that the sound of a black human being accepting death and or fighting for his life while an officer's knee flattened his throat would take his imagination into places his insides would likely never escape. While we were talking, I wondered how differently this conversation would have gone if we were alone. I foolishly imagined that it would be just us during our conversation, but that's not how it works. As we talked, there were four other strangers listening in, producers who were neither big, black, or blind feeding me questions on Zoom. A sound guy standing behind me for three hours in my tiny office. There was the imagined audience of folks who were not big, black, or blind. It made whatever connection we had feel like a short-lived, spectacular performance that neither of us were directing. I I wonder if you could talk, if you have anything more to say, Dara, about the way Black men have interacted with you since you've lost your sight. It's been really... Like, brothers have this way of understanding without getting too personal, but also mm-hmm. not letting you get off easy. 
Right. <laughs> uh, you know, they let you know, hey, man, you still a brother. No matter what you are, you still one of us, right? So like, there know. was this one amateur comedian. So I gave him some notes. You know, he said, damn, man, you funny. He said, uh, all right, man. So I said, all right, bro. He said, all right, Cyclops. And then, wow. And then, yeah, all right, Cyclops. Wow. And then bounce. <laughs> wow. So, uh, <laughs> interesting about the black community now is because I'm blind, um, I think they think I'm even more black than I was before. Oh, talk to me about that, brother. What is, what does that mean? Why? How? Because now, you know, I'm just my energy, which is just black. It's not insecurity. It's not, you know, I read a lot of books or I speak well or don't speak well. Now, now I'm just this brother that understands things. Though I've been firmly on this side of vision and this side of suspicion my entire life, my relationship with both started to shift immediately after my conversation with Daryl. I tried so hard not to be that goofy man whose life has changed in one interaction with the blind black dude. But the truth is, the day following our conversation, I didn't wait in the parking lot for my neighbors to go in before I got out of my car. I didn't sit on my couch working all day wondering what it would be like to actually go outside and play. I went to the park near dusk and swung on swings next to strangers for the first time since the pandemic started. While swinging, I kept my mask on and listened again to Daryl's latest album. I kept replaying the first track where the older brother from Milwaukee recognizes Daryl at the baggage claim. Yeah, you the real philosophical nigga with the fucked up eyes like a video comedy. I was like... That few minutes of swinging next to unmasked strangers, laughing goofily with Daryl's voice in my ears, it didn't make me feel free or delivered or fundamentally changed. It made me go home in what feels like a world full of ruin, extremely thankful to be alive, and listen to an unexpected voicemail from a stranger named Daryl. Man, I texted him back. I'm so glad we ain't strangers no more. K.S.A. Glayman, he's the author of several books, most recently a memoir called Heavy. Coming up, a guy comes to New York City thinking it's a den of iniquity, and then a stranger walks up to him with a very unusual suggestion. Should he take the advice? That's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, The Possum Experiment. Stories that shed light on the embarrassingly basic question, are most people usually trying to do the right thing? Can they be trusted? We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Spring Awakening. Okay, so one answer to the question, can you trust people to do the right thing, is that you can trust the people in your own group. And you can define that group however you want, the people you share a religion with, or a nationality, or a race, or maybe you grew up in the same place, went to the same school. They're the ones who share your values. Everybody else, don't trust them. That's how the person in this next story, Clay Elder, thought about things. Till one day, during a visit to New York City, Elna Baker tells what happened. I've known Clay since we were 15. And when we get together, 
it's not unusual for us to Mormon out. Uh, what were they called? Book of Mormon stories. That one? Oh, well, that one, but, but darn it. The one, Try to so remember weird. church songs and other stuff from when we were kids. We believe the Bible to, to be the, the word of God, God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. <laughs> It's not even a song. It's just words and notes. Clay is gay. As a kid growing up in the Mormon church, he was taught that practicing homosexuality was akin to incest or bestiality. He hid out in musical theater, which, I know, terrible hiding place. But in Utah, that worked. He studied theater at BYU. That's where he learned some of the musicals that Mormons love. The cheesy, G-rated shows like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. He didn't think it was something he would be able to do professionally. Instead, he saw it as a hobby. He did musicals that the Mormon church put on, playing everyone from Joseph Smith, father of Mormonism, to Joseph, father of Jesus, or stepfather. He'd get on stage in front of thousands, help Mary give birth to the Son of God, and then sneak out to gay bars. If he kissed a guy, he'd feel guilty, then he'd repent, then repeat. It was torture. He knew that a bigger city like New York was where people went to do all the things he wanted to do. But he couldn't imagine going there. New York was evil. It was like the great like the great city that would one day fall. It's the great and spacious building. The great and spacious building. I knew that's what you're thinking yeah, when you it, said that. I mean, basically it was. The great and spacious building is Mormon code for the wicked outside world. In the Book of Mormon... The people who lived in the great and spacious building, dressed in fancy clothes and pointed out their windows at the believers, laughing at us and mocking us. Their goal was to tempt us away from the righteous path. Clay saw New York and the people in it as the great and spacious building. And I don't even mean metaphorically. It was talked, it was, you know, I think that everyone said it was. So it took a lot to get Clay to New York, a catastrophic event. It all started when Clay got a boyfriend, his first, and almost no one knew. It was a big deal for him. It meant stepping away from the church, possibly losing his family. After they slept together, they decided to get tested for HIV as a precaution. This was 2006. And we went down to the Utah County Health Center, where, and we're like, we want HIV tests, and they looked at us like we had three heads. To be openly out like that in Utah County was rare, Clay says. They both did the tests. Clay got called in to get his results, negative. And then it was his boyfriend's turn. They said his name, he walked back, and I waited. And I waited. And like five minutes went by. And there was no way this was possible. We were just like two nice, recently out gay guys in Utah. Who are only taking this test because they're so paranoid about being gay. Yeah, yeah. It was truly just to get one out of the way to see what it was like. 24 years old, 23, 24 years old. I waited, waited and waited there by myself. And finally the nurse came out and she had tears coming down her face. And she said, can you please come back into this room? And to say that my stomach dropped, I... I 
I could hardly stand up from the chair because I was so shaken. Walked back into the room. He was sitting on the chair crying. There was a doctor in the room, a nurse in the room, the one who was crying. And he said, my test came back positive through a sobs. I remember there was like a, a little stool in the corner that I sat down on. I just didn't know anything. I had not been prepared for this moment. The doctor told Clay that since he'd been having unprotected sex, he likely had HIV too. It was just too close to exposure for it to show up on the rapid test. What do you remember feeling like when you got the news? I really remember thinking, of course. Of course this is what's going to happen. Because just when you stick your toe outside of the church and you're like, okay, am I... Am I maybe going to do something, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I, I still really believed it. It's not like I, like, you know, closed up the Book of Mormon and was like, cool, that's not real. Bye, I'm gay. I still was like, oh my gosh, they were right. To Clay, the cruel irony of getting HIV with his first real boyfriend wasn't lost on him. The doctor took blood samples and sent them home to wait a week for the results. The next few days were hell. And that's when I said, we're not going to sit at home waiting it out. We're going to go do something. And we're going to go do what I want to do, which is I want to go to New York City and I want to see musicals. Clay spent nearly all the money he had on two flights and a cheap hotel. They got to New York and started getting as many $20 rush tickets to musicals as they could afford. Spamalot, Jersey Boys. I was so excited by it all. I was so excited to see shows. I was so excited to be in the city. But also terrified. And it was kind of like these moments of elation side by side with these moments of terror um, as I tried to just ignore what was actually happening. What was actually happening was that Clay was on the phone during the day trying to get them both in a medical trial for HIV meds. This is what he was thinking about as he was waiting in line to see another bouncy musical, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. The doors opened they shuffled into the theater. Their tickets were standing room only, so they hung in the back against the wall. And the show ended. And we were all walking, you know, you're all kind of herding outside, and we end up standing next to some people as we're herding outside, and they struck up a conversation with us. What appeared to be this gay guy and his friend, this woman. And he, they said, are you from out of town? And we said, yeah, we're just, we're in New York visiting. And... And by that time, we'd gotten outside of the theater. And he said, you know, you look like you were enjoying that show more than anybody in the expensive seats. And he pulled out a wad of cash. And he said, here's $200. Go buy yourself tickets to Sweeney Todd tomorrow. It'll change your life. And I'm this kid from Utah. And I'm like, oh, okay, what do you want? <laughs> I was a little bit like, what's going on? Yeah. Um, and I took the money and and I, I just was like, I, thank you. Thank you so much. You're really just giving me this money. And he said, yes, just take the money. Go buy your, as long as you promise you'll buy yourself tickets to that show. I was like, yes, yes, I will. And we were standing next to an ice cream truck. And I said, can I buy you an ice cream cone to say thank you? <laughs> so we bought ice cream cones. 
And I asked also if I could take a picture with them. Because again, I just couldn't think of what to do or say. I was so taken back by it. That was a lot of money to me. Yeah. I could have done a lot of things with $200 at that time in my life. They saw Sweeney Todd the following night. If you don't know the show, it's really different than the other musicals Clay had been seeing all week. It's about a barber who's seeking revenge on society by slitting the throats of his customers. His partner in crime, Mrs. Lovett, takes the bodies and bakes them into meat pies. It was nothing like the shows Clay knew from BYU. For Clay, it was like that moment in the movie Pleasantville, where the whole world is in black and white, and suddenly you see a red rose. That was the kind of theater I wanted to do. It was weird, it was dark, it was strange. Some people hated it and some people loved it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted experimental weird things. Mm -hmm. And this was experimental and weird and they were pouring buckets of blood around and Patti Lapone played the tuba. I was, it was like it ignited something inside of me that was, that was always there and that I knew was there. But it was like, oh, that's it. That's the thing I love. So this random guy became for you like a plot point in your life, like where you basically were like, okay, there's the day before I met him where I wasn't going to pursue any of this. Then I meet this guy and what? And suddenly I'm going to move to New York and be an actor because this is what I want. He gave me he gave me permission to move on kind of to the next step. Because he was like, and by being kind, he basically was saying it's safe on this side. Yes. That's the perfect way of putting it. The very next morning, after seeing Sweeney Todd, Clay and his boyfriend got a call from the doctor, saying that the rapid test results were wrong, that neither of them had HIV. For Clay, it felt like a sign. His impulse to move to New York, it was the right one. So he did, a year and a half later. He's been in New York for almost 15 years. And he actually did become a Broadway star. He's currently starring in Company, opposite Patti Lapone, who he once saw play the tuba. And Clay still thinks about that guy who gave him money to see Sweeney Todd. Recently, he decided to do an act of kindness in the stranger's honor. He posted their story on Instagram, including the picture of them in front of the ice cream truck, and offered to buy tickets to Company for someone who couldn't afford it. A friend immediately called and said, I know that guy. They called the stranger over FaceTime. His name is Mark. So, Mark. What? I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little emotional. Um, 15 years ago, I went to go and see the Putnam County Spelling Bee. And I was standing in the standing room. And no I. Way. <laughs> no way. And I walked outside the theater and you, you gave me $200 to go see Sweeney Todd. Yes. Clay tells him how he ended up moving to New York because of it. How he's now on Broadway. It's a mushy, cathartic reunion. I don't even know what to say. That's like... Just so amazing that, A, that you remember that. That it actually, like, sometimes you do things hoping that just like a random act of kindness will actually resonate with somebody. And that it actually did is really just amazing. I mean, what a, what a gift you've given me today. <laughs> Are you kidding? Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, of course. 
Clay has heard this recording many times, but when he plays it for me, his reaction is visceral. His face turns red. He's crying. What is it about a random act of kindness that does this to us? Like Clay, I can't talk about the strangers who've helped me without being reduced to a puddle. I think it has to do with the fact that it feels so unearned. Like, if a family member or a friend does something for me, I understand it because they love me, they care. But if a stranger does it, it breaks my brain a little. That's what I think is happening to Clay. It's weird to be so emotional about something that's so happy. It's a great (laughs) thing, you know, it's all happy. It just, I don't know why I cry about it. Like, it's like I cry about it because it's like I believe in something. (laughs) Again. Like it makes you feel like a little kid or something? Yeah. Like hopeful or... Yeah. Because it's... I mean, along the lines of this conversation, it's... When you leave a church that has been your whole life, you start to feel like it means you can't believe in anything anymore. And when something really incredible and good like this happens, it makes you believe again. By the way, I called up Mark, asked him why he gave Clay the money all those years ago. To explain one of the biggest reasons, he told me a story about this time he went to Italy. He had planned to stay with a new friend who'd recently moved to Rome. But the guy totally flaked on him, and he had nowhere but expensive hotels to sleep. Mark didn't have that kind of money. So he called up this gay couple he had met his first night in Italy. They ran a bar in town and asked them if they knew of a cheap hostel. Their response? Come stay with us. For 10 nights, they hosted Mark, a complete stranger. Mark says they were total gentlemen, trusting him in a way that frankly shocked him. They gave him keys told him he could come and go as he pleased. He couldn't believe their generosity. And it changed him into the kind of guy who hands a stranger $200 and says, hey, go see this show. It'll change your life. Anna Baker is one of the producers of our show. This is one of the songs in the show that Quay is doing on Broadway right now. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground pile. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers. Some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers. Some come to stare, some to stay. And every day. Act three, never hear the end of it. So um, we close out today's show with this story that is very on point with everything we've been talking about till now from Sean Cole. This is one of my favorite stories to tell. Like I tell it at parties or to anyone who will listen. And since we're here talking about the nature of people and whether they're mostly good or mostly bad, I figured I'd tell it to you. Have you ever seen A Clockwork Orange? The Stanley Kubrick movie? Guys running around in bowler hats and jockstraps on the outside of their pants, committing acts of quote-unquote ultraviolence. It's one of the most iconic films of the 20th century. 
set in a dystopian near future where teenage hoodlums speak this kind of stylized, russified slang. It's also intensely violent and deeply misogynist in ways I don't think I understood when I first saw it and obsessed over it. I was in my teens then, same age that the main character Alex is supposed to be. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our docs what to do with the evening. Thing is, the meaning of the story, what it says about the inherent goodness or badness of people, has been largely and grossly misunderstood. Or at least, the meaning that was originally intended by its creator, Anthony Burgess, the guy who wrote the novel the movie's based on. He talked about this a lot in his lifetime. Although Kubrick made a, an interesting film out of it, the film wasn't quite accurate. He didn't follow the book as it should have done. He cut out the final chapter for one thing. The final chapter. Chapter 21. The film is actually really faithful to the book until that last part. But that last chapter radicalizes everything. If you know the movie, you know the movie. But if you don't, you'll at least need to know the plot of it for any of this to make sense. I'll try to summarize it as quick as I can. So Alex and his three droogs, meaning friends, they spend their nights getting hopped up on drug-infused milk and hurting people. They beat up a panhandler, steal a car and run other cars off the road. There's a pretty famous rape scene, which incidentally was inspired by Burgess's first wife getting assaulted, though not sexually, by a group of American soldiers. About a third of the way through, Alex accidentally murders someone during a break-in and goes to prison. And after serving a couple years, the government chooses him for a new experimental type of aversion therapy. They gave him this drug, which makes him basically allergic to violence. Anytime he so much as pictures hitting someone, he's overwhelmed by nausea and dread. Also, whenever he hears the music of Beethoven, but that's another thing. Then the government does this presentation where they trot out the new forcibly reformed Alex, subject him to insults, injury, sexual temptation, and in response, all he can do is gag and retch. Then a priest in the audience leaps up to object, with the operative word, choice. The boy has no real choice, has he? He ceases to be a wrongdoer. He ceases also to be a creature capable of moral choice. Padre, these are subtleties. Anyway, Alex gets out, a bunch of bad stuff happens, tries to kill himself. The government sees the whole thing as a PR nightmare and gives him an antidote to the treatment transforming him back to his evil, remorseless, smashing things self. Also, he can listen to Beethoven again. I was cured, all right. The end. It's bleak. With a point that it's better to let people choose to be bad than to brainwash them into harmless robots, clockwork oranges, with no will of their own. But in the book, the final chapter, it wasn't in the movie, it changes the meaning of everything that's gone before it. In the final chapter, Alex is back at the Corova Milk Bar with three new droogs, a whole new gang. But this time, when they go out to stomp on random people, Alex hangs back. Something's eating at him. It's like he's bored with all the violence now. Doesn't enjoy any of this like he used to. He wanders into a coffee shop where he runs into a member of his old gang, Pete, and Pete's wife. They look happy, living the quiet life. And Alex thinks, maybe that's what's missing. Maybe I should settle down, have a kid, hopefully a son. I felt this bullshy big hollow inside my plot, he says, meaning his body, feeling very surprised too at myself. I knew what was happening, oh my brothers. I was like growing up. 
When I read that, it was like the top of my head blew off. Alex isn't inherently evil. He didn't just go back to doing all the bad stuff he used to do. And he didn't need an experimental drug to reform him. He just needed time to get there on his own. I was in my early 20s when I picked up the novel, so some years after I saw the movie, and the feeling was like I'd unfairly underestimated someone for a long time. It's also an ending that comports more with reality. There's research that shows a big reason people disengage from gang life is just that they get older, age out of it. But more than that, the two endings represent two completely different ways of looking at the world. One is saying that people can change, even the worst people, whereas the other is saying that evil is evil irredeemably. And those two worldviews, they're baked into this ridiculous backstory about that final chapter. According to Burgess, when the book was published here in the States, the publisher told him they wouldn't put it out unless they could cut chapter 21. This was way before the movie was optioned. It was still just a novel. They said the optimistic ending was Pollyanna-ish, naive, and bland. They were like, we Americans are tougher than you Brits. We can handle a nihilistic ending. Some people are just beyond hope. That's more realistic. Burgess needed money back then, he said. If the only way to sell the story to Americans was to lop off its conclusion, then so be it. So now, there were two A Clockwork Oranges in the world, with two different endings, depending on where you lived. Burgess writes about this whole Michigas and how he felt about it in an introduction to a later edition of the book. I just want to read. This is probably my favorite part of what he says. Now, when Stanley Kubrick made his film, though he made it in England, he followed the American version and, so it seemed to his audiences outside America, ended the story somewhat prematurely. Audiences did not exactly clamor for their money back, but they wondered why Kubrick left out the denouement. People wrote to me about this. Indeed, much of my later life has been expended on Xeroxing statements of intention and the frustration of intention, while both Kubrick and the New York publisher coolly bask in the rewards of their misdemeanor. Life is, of course, terrible. It's funny, but it was also endlessly frustrating to Burgess. He wrote that he didn't think the American edition, and thus the movie, was a fair depiction of human life. It's as inhuman to be 100% evil as it is to be 100% good. The two need to coexist. He was unequivocal about that. Further, when the film came out, there was a moral panic about it, both in the UK and here in the States. And it wasn't just the violence people were upset about. It was the ending. An editor for the New York Times wrote in the arts and leisure section of the paper, the thesis that man is irretrievably bad and corrupt is the essence of fascism. I can't help but think how all of this might have been different if that last chapter had never been cut. And that, for years, was everything I knew. But then recently, as I was getting ready to tell all of this to you, oh my brothers, I thought I should, like, actually do some research, make sure I got my facts straight. And as with A Clockwork Orange itself, it turns out there's a whole other chapter to this saga one that I didn't know existed. To start with, that quote from Burgess I read earlier that ends with, life is, of course, terrible. That's a very entertaining account of the story. I think it's inaccurate in various ways. This is Andrew Biswell. He's spent more than 25 years researching Burgess, in part for his aptly titled book, The Real Life of Anthony Burgess. It wasn't always the easiest job. 
he would embroider and he would um, be more concerned with telling a good story than with sticking to factual accuracy. Now, I've been going through the manuscript of A Clockwork Orange as part of my research into Burgess. The original manuscript, the one Burgess sent around to his editors in England and America. And just turning the pages and noting any annotations on the typescript. And I remember coming to this note in his own handwriting, which says at the end of chapter 20, should we end here? Should we end here? An optional epilogue follows. Epilogue is in quotes. Again, this was at the end of the second to last chapter, where Alex turns bad again. And what did you think when you when you saw it? I, I nearly fell off my chair. I was very surprised because uh, I'd grown up with the, uh, the the Burgess introductions and commentaries on his book and had up, up until that point, I'd been inclined to believe them. And this, this question, should we end here? I was surprised by the level of doubt. Surprised because Burgess publicly was so emphatic that he had been forced to cut the last chapter and that it was the wrong decision. And when Andrew looked into it further, he found that Burgess's editor in America, Eric Swenson, never insisted on scrapping the last chapter. Yes, he thought it was Pollyanna-ish and, quote, unconvincing, but getting rid of it wasn't a condition of publication. Not only that, this guy Swenson said Burgess agreed with his opinion and that Burgess told him he'd only added the 21st chapter because the British publisher wanted a happy ending. Also, Burgess wrote his own screenplay for A Clockwork Orange, that ended at the same place Kubrick's screenplay did, No Redemption. And then, years later, Burgess wrote a musical, yes, a musical version of the story, which reverted back to the longer redemptive ending and took it even further. Alex goes off with his girlfriend and they're going to get married. Oh. That's right, yeah. Is she is she a character or is she like offstage somewhere? No, no, she appears she, and speaks. She's called Marty. <laughs> and then there's a... The play has a, a prologue in the Garden of Eden where uh, Alex and Marty play Adam and Eve. It, it's very confusing. The whole thing is, is messy. It, it's strange that he tries to pin this on other people. Uh, whereas the reality is that, you know, it's like the, the good angel and the evil angel are, are dictating sort of different endings to him. So in the end, which ending do you think that Burgess thought of as the, as the better ending? By the time you get to the 1980s and he's making his stage adaptation, he, he's coming down in favour of chapter 21 as the, the kind of correct or the authorised ending. And what does that say, do you think, about his worldview, like about what he believed about the true nature of human beings? Well, the big thing that had changed in his life was that he had a son by his second marriage, and a very wayward son, and he was, he was, I suppose, worried that that this person should, um, should should do well in the world. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose Burgess in the eighties, he's 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 much more of a protective father figure. Which, if that's the reason, makes so much sense. When you have a kid, especially one you're worried won't turn out well, you have to believe people can change. Like Alex finally changed, dreaming of his own son. It's like they literally ended up on the same page, Burgess and Alex. One of them happened to have typed out that page, while the other danced across it in a jockstrap and suspenders. They both grew up. Funnily, Andrew Biswell says he prefers the shorter ending, just thinks it makes for a tougher book. Although he goes back and forth, he says. Depends on what day you ask him. Me, I come down where Burgess ultimately did. 
I like believing that we can grow into better versions of ourselves. And besides all that, you get to see Alex walk off into the sunset. On the last page, he says, farewell from your little droog. Should we end here? Janko is one of the producers of our show. If you see your brother standing by the road With a heavy load From the seeds he sowed And if you see your sister falling by the way Stop and say well, You're going the wrong way well, You've got to try A little kindness Yes, show a little kindness or Just shine your light For everyone to see And if you try A little kindness Then you'll overlook the blindness Narrow-minded people On the narrow-minded well, our program was produced today by Elna Baker. The people who put our show together today include Bim Adewumni, Chris Benderev, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Michael Kamate, Kyla Jones, Turbin Lohr, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Will Peichel, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Thomas Reed. Our website, thisamericanlife.org where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite shows if you're looking for something to listen on a log car trip. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is a little bit of public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. He went this week to a Gwen Stefani concert. His review? I was surprised by the level of doubt. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Ah!